Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. So every, uh, every Father's Day, I I've kind of have this, uh, I don't know if it's just a... Um, it's something I've done for a few years now is I do dad jokes every Father's Day. They're horrible, okay? They're horrible, but it's our day, so we can do dad jokes. But I feel kind of bad because I feel like the moms have been missing out on mom jokes um, over the years. And so I brought a couple just to get us, just to get us started here. Um, you can use them. Feel free. You don't even have to quote me for them. Uh, motherhood, because going to the bathroom in private is overrated. <laughs> All right? Uh, mothers of teens understand why some animals eat their young. Right. Um, an important truth no one tells first-time moms, both of you come home from the hospital in diapers. <laughs> okay, um, let's see here. A police recruit was asked during an exam, what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? He said, call for backup. <laughs> what three words solve dad's every problem? Ask your mother. Uh, I don't want to sleep like a baby. I want to sleep like my husband, says mom. (laughs) What do you call a mom after she counts to three? A momster. (laughs) And then finally, uh, motherhood is like a fairy tale, but in reverse. You start out in a beautiful gown and end up in stained rags cleaning up after little people. (laughs) So, moms, we love you. We appreciate you. And um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for everything that you do. So this weekend, we're going to continue on our series. And the series that we've been in is called Stopping Points. And if you haven't been here, let me just give you kind of a brief overview, is we've been talking about our faith journey. And following Jesus is sort of like a, a, a journey of any kind, but the one that came to my mind was being on a train ride. And as we're going on this journey following Jesus, sometimes we hit what I call stopping points. And stopping points are where we have to make a decision. Do we continue to follow Jesus or is this where we stop the journey? And so last week we talked about one of the stopping points, which was money. Is Jesus wants everything from us when we follow him. And so he'll ask for different arenas of our life. And so one of those is he says, I want your money. And we have to decide, well, are we going to let him have control of our money or not? Um, the, the first week, Doyle talked about the pursuit of happiness, is there is times in which we don't get to pursue happiness. We have to pursue calling instead, and so we have to decide, is that going to be our stopping point? Well, today, I want to talk about another stopping point, and it might be kind of weird at first to think of this as a stopping point, but it is love, is love can be a stopping point in our journey of following Jesus, which sounds totally backwards because that seems to be the point of following Jesus, but Hopefully, as we work through today's passage, it'll make more sense. So, uh, I'm going to jump into John chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 3. Here's what it says. It's talking about Jesus. He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Just real quick, he didn't have to, like, geographically. He could have gone around, which is mostly what the Jews would do if they were going to travel. They wouldn't go into Samaria. They would travel around it because these people were seen as the enemies. They were half-breeds. And so they wouldn't want to go into their territory because that would make them unclean. But it says that he had to, that Jesus had to go through here. And we'll find out is because he had a specific meeting that he, was, uh, that he was going to. Now, no one else knew about this meeting, but he did. 
Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so he's traveling, and he stops at this well, and it's a very specific well. It's Jacob's well. And I can't believe that it's a coincidence that he stops at Jacob's well. Now, if you don't know the story of Jacob, let me take just a very quick detour, and I'll kind of give you a brief overview, because I think there's some, maybe some parallels between the story that we're about to see and Jacob's story. So if you go back to the Old Testament, you start with this man named Abraham, who God spoke to and said, through you, I'm going to build up an entire nation, an entire people, and I'm going to reveal myself to them and through them to the rest of the world. And so then Jacob, or Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they're twins, but technically Esau is born first. And with uh, the firstborn in that culture, they got a blessing and a majority of the inheritance. And so we, we learn that Esau, that he is strong, that he is um, athletic, that he is going out and he is providing for the family by hunting, and we find that Jacob is staying home and he's making soup. And so one day, uh, Jacob decides, you know what, I'm a lot smarter than my brother. I'm going to trick him into giving me his rights as a firstborn. And so he does this, and you go and read the story about how, how all that takes place, but let's just say it didn't go over well. His brother gets very angry, says he's going to kill him, and so he's got to flee. And as he goes, he not only has to leave his father, who is on his deathbed, but he has to leave his mother and then, of course, his brother and everything that he knows. And as he's wandering, he eventually gets to his uncle's house, Laban, and he begins to work for, them, for him. And as he is working, he, uh, he notices that there are two girls there, Leah and Rachel, they're Laban's daughters, also his cousins, which is going to be kind of weird in a minute. You'll see why. And he falls deeply in love with Rachel. Now, Leah is the older one, but she is the far less attractive one. And then Rachel, the younger, she is the one that, to be honest, is the beautiful one. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I will continue to work for you if you will allow me to marry Rachel. And so Laban says, okay, you can marry my daughter if you work for seven years. They come up with agreement, and he eventually does. Now, if you know the story, uh, when it comes time for them to get married, there is probably a lot of alcohol that is involved, a lot of partying, and he wakes up the next morning after he's married. He rolls over, and instead of seeing Rachel, he sees Leah. And he goes, wait a minute. Uh, this wasn't part of the agreement. Goes back to Laban and says, what's the deal? You said if I worked for seven years, then I could have your daughter in marriage. And he said, yeah, I did say a daughter. I didn't say which one. You give me another seven years, you can have both of them. And so he ends up working. I know, it's crazy. You should read the Bible. You're like, that's in there? Yeah. No, there's wild things in there, you guys. Yeah, it's crazy. I love how you guys are shocked, like, oh, is this new? Do people know about this? Have people been talking? Oh my goodness, this is wild. Where is TMZ? Anyway, okay. So he, uh, he ends up um, working another seven years and, and marries both of them. All right, now keep that story uh, kind of in the back of your mind because I think it's going to be important. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So there, this woman, known from here on as the woman at the well, we're going to see some parallels between her story and Jacob's story. 
And right away, we already see that this woman is a bit of an outcast. Just like Jacob was an outcast from his family and he had to flee, she is also an outcast in her community. That's why she's getting water from this well in the middle of the day. This is not the time when everybody goes because it's hot, it's humid, nobody wants to go there. It's usually during the cool of the day that people will go to the well. But she's there by herself. Now, we don't know exactly why she's an outcast yet. We'll see in a minute. But we know that she is not a part of the community. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, uh, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, of course, we know what water is. It's important for survival. We have to have it. But he starts talking about this living water. He continues on. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So what Jesus is doing here is um, he's trying to point out that this woman has a need. And the need is far greater than a physical need that she has. She, she, th she thinks she's coming there and her need is, I need to get water. But what Jesus is saying here is, no, 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 no. you have a greater need than that. And we can see this need also in Jacob, is the reason why Jacob was so desperate in, in getting Rachel as his wife that he pursued her and would do anything that it took to get it. And what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying that there is a, a thirst that you have, and it's like a soul-level need. It's the reason why you feel this emptiness, why you keep chasing these different things, why you can't find satisfaction, why you always have to have uh, approval and affirmation and affection is because there's some sort of hole in your heart. And you could chalk it up to uh, Jacob's past. Well, he lost his father and his mother and his brother and his family of origin is a mess. And so, you know, he's trying to make up for that. And that's partly true. But it, it's true of all of us, no matter what family we've come from, no matter what we've experienced, is there seems to be something within each of us that, and it might be hard to put our finger on it, but there's a, an emptiness, there's a void, there's this thirst, this longing that we have, and we might not even be able to verbalize it like that, but you can see it in our actions. We get up every day and we're pursuing something. It could be money, it could be beauty, it could be the next relationship or our moment of pleasure, but all of us are pursuing something. What are we, what, what's motivating us to, to run after these things? Well, Jesus would say it's something deep within your soul, something that can't be fulfilled by any of these experiences or relationships or things. I had a conversation um, this week with one of my friends, and he works in finance. And we were talking about some of the people who are at the, the top of his company, and they make tens and tens of millions of dollars every single year. And that's like a different world. I don't understand that. And so I said, just tell me about these people. You know, like, are they superhuman? How are they able to do this? And he said, well, they're smart, but really, there's this hunger within them. They're never satisfied. It's never enough. They must always have more. And so they keep pursuing more money, more deals, more. 
there's something within them that just can't be satisfied. And see, that is true of each one of us, is there is nothing in this world that is going to fully satisfy. It will be like a drink of water. It's momentary satisfaction, but there's always going to be another need. Like, you've never had something to drink and said, I'm good now. It's like the everlasting gobstopper. I drank it, I'm never thirsty again. This is fantastic. No, you drink it, and then a little while later, you're thirsty again. So Jesus is pointing to this fact that we will continue to thirst and continue to long unless we find this living water, something that will satisfy us forever. And see, what he's talking about, and he doesn't say it quite yet, but Jesus is talking about a desire for love. And the desire for love can't be met by any person or pursuit. It's only through one source, through your creator. You have been created to love and to be loved. And all the relationships in the world, those are great, but no matter how good they are, you're never going to find what you're looking for because there is a hole there. And that hole is a love from your creator. He made you to be loved by him. And he made you to love him. And until you realize that, you will continue to chase these things for the rest of your life. But clearly she's not getting it. And so he, he says, all right, let me show you. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What he have just said is quite true. So I don't know if you've ever played this game before where um, you, you maybe, you know, sitting over a cup of coffee and you say, okay, if you could talk to anybody in all of human history right now, who would it be? And Jesus is almost always one of the top three answers, rightfully so, of course, especially as a Christian, that would be my number one answer. But I'm not sure you would love the conversation that you have with him. Because like here they are, they're, they're having a cup of water together, and um, Jesus begins talking to her and says, now um, let's talk about those five husbands that you've had and the guy that you're living with right now, not your husband. Let's chat about that. I should have chosen somebody else. That's what I should have done. I don't really like where this conversation is heading, to be frank. Jesus confronts her, and he says, you know that emptiness and that brokenness? The way that you've been dealing with it is through a distorted view of love. Is, and we don't know her history. We don't know what her motives are. She could have viewed love and, and sex as a way to to experience comfort and security. It could just have been a way of survival in that, that culture. We don't know why she did what she did. We don't know what brought her to this place. Was she a victim? Was she a perpetrator? Was she a little bit of both? But here's what we do know, is that she, along with many other people, have taken this beautiful gift that God has given us, marriage and sex, and started to distort this love. And redefining in order to address some of these, this brokenness in our life. Same thing that Jacob did, by the way. Is, is Jacob pursued Rachel as a way to fulfill his sexual desires. He was empty and he thought, you know what? If I just have her, then my life will be okay. And some of us, we struggle with this as well. Is um, love and sex can become like a drug. 
is to become something that we're addicted to because it helps us to uh, at least temporarily deal with these, the brokenness and the emptiness of our life. And so we become obsessed by it. We will do anything to get it, to make ourselves feel okay. And so we will try to pursue that next, next sexual experience or that next relationship, always looking for the next high. And so we jump from person to person to person to person. And like any other addiction, we become enslaved to our pursuit of love. So I think this brings up a, maybe a more fundamental question, which is, who gets to define and shape what and how we love? Like, if you think about the biggest controversies in our culture today, pick your favorite one or your least favorite one. You've got, uh, this week, abortion, huge topic, gay marriage, transgenderism, income inequality, universal health care, all of these issues... On both sides, people are saying, my view is the most loving view. Isn't that weird? You can be talking about such important issues, and on both sides, they're claiming, well, no, I'm doing the loving thing. No, 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 I'm doing the loving thing. And so who, who, how do we decide? Which is the most loving view? So the way that our culture decides what is loving is as hyper-individuals, what we do is, or individualistic, what we do is we look deep within our hearts. And we say, okay, what do I desire most? What do I feel is loving? What do, what do I feel like I, the person? Who, who am I supposed to love? And so really, the, the way that we define and decide what love is, is based on our feelings and our desires. And you can see it in some of our most uh, popular expressions. You can't help who you love. Love is blind. And love is love. Meaning... I, I'm going to love whoever I want to love. And we have like one little qualifier, which is as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Then our loves are justified. And so to do the loving thing is to simply affirm and enable somebody to pursue what they desire and what they feel. And so we hear things like, well, don't you try to change me. Don't you try to make me into a different person. Don't you try. And I just want to say, oh, hold on. But what if you need changed? Like, what if you fundamentally are a crappy person? Excuse me. Oh, sorry. That was not, and again, Mother's Day. I got to clean up my, my act here. Um, that's silly. No, no, no. In fact, the most loving thing I can do is challenge your desires, challenge your feelings. What happens when you have two loves and they conflict? Then what do you do? Or what if you love something that I know is going to destroy you? Then what am I supposed to do? I think it's all really just an illusion that we've bought into, is that somehow if we look deep within and we look at our feelings and desires, that determines who and how and what we love. So let me see if I can illustrate this. Take these two characters. Uh, Jacob. So he has two wives, and he spent 14 years trying to pay for them. The woman at the well, she's been married numerous times and is currently living with her boyfriend. So let's take those two characters. Scenario number one is let's put them in rural, let's say Africa or Asia or the Middle East today. First person, Jacob. Not only would he be, be seen as accepted, but maybe even the norm. Yeah, he has multiple wives and it costs him some money. No big deal. But then you put that woman at the well in that same culture. Not only is she an outcast, but she might just be stoned to death. Now, let's take those same characters and let's put them today in Beverly Hills. Jacob, not only are you an outcast, but you're probably going to get arrested for polygamy and sex trafficking. The woman at the well, you just got a deal to be on Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> she is a woman on the move, right? 
She is expressing her sexuality. She is living her truth. What's the difference between those two? The only difference is the culture that they find themselves in. See, we believe that we're deciding, that we're pursuing our feelings, our true self. No, you're not. What you're doing is you're pursuing the thing that culture told you is acceptable, and you're denying the thing that culture told you is unacceptable. And those two can be flip-flop depending on the culture that you find yourself in. And so we believe that we're being true to ourselves, but that's, that's not even true. There's a book um, called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And uh, in it, he argues that we all begin with this assumption that we are thinking things first and foremost. And the way that we come to our loves is why we think about what we love. Or the way that we pursue is we think. And he says, no, we've got this all backwards. Says, yes, thinking is very important. But the way that you actually determine what and how you love is, is or he says, we're not thinking things first. We're, we're lovers first. Is we first decide what we love. And then we think about why we love those things. And so one of the ways that um, our loves are shaped is not by looking deep within ourselves or not even by thinking hard about those things. It's through the different actions, the habits that we have that we begin to shape who and how we love. So for example, uh, maybe today at some point you'll go on to social media or you'll watch a sports event or you'll go to uh, online shopping or maybe even uh, the mall what you're doing in those moments is you are shaping the things that you love by the habits that you, you have throughout your day. And so you, you have to determine, is this habit, is it shaping me to love Jesus more or something else more? And I'm not saying that these things are bad in of themselves, but you have to realize that everything that we do is shaping what we love. And so we might say that those things are shaping my love for consumerism or status or my tribe. And so we have to realize that everything that we do is shaping our love. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, um, what he's saying is, I don't only want you to love me first, I want to get to determine what and how you love. I get to determine what love is and then what you love, which is kind of crazy to think about. Like when we get into something tangible like money, we go, okay, he wants my money, he wants to spend it. But when we talk about our hearts, he says, no, no, I want that too. I want to decide who and how you love. This is why it's a potential stopping point for many people, is we have to decide, is this a stopping point for me, or is this where I continue to follow Jesus? So I was a a youth pastor, a young adult pastor for many years, and um, we would have this thing that would happen over and over again when I worked in young adults, is I uh, I would notice that somebody wasn't there. And they had been very involved, and they had been engaged, and then all of a sudden they just disappeared, and I would say, hey, what happened to such and such? And every time it was, well, you know, they got a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And it wasn't that they had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, that's great, but the problem was is there was something in that relationship that conflicted with what Jesus wanted, and they decided, I'm going to pick this person over Jesus. And so it could have been something like, well, you know, they're not a Christian, and you know, you know how Jesus talks about that, or yeah, they're sleeping together, they're living together now, or we started talking about man and woman for life, and that made them uncomfortable, and so they decided this was their stopping point. This relationship, this love, was more important than the love that they had for Jesus. And so this is where their journey would end. All right, let me continue on. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So here's how you know a conversation is going really, really poorly, 
is when you change the conversation to religion. Like, that's how you know it's not going well. Can you imagine over the dinner table, it's going so poorly that you're like, so, what do you guys think about Jesus? You know, like there's some relatives that are just like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is not good. All right. Uh, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Well, so what he's saying is there's about to be a fundamental change in how you worship. And he's talking about himself. It used to be in temples and sacrifices, and those are going to become obsolete because of what I'm going to do. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Here's what Jesus is saying. And this is true of all humanity. And I don't care if you're a Christian. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you're somewhere in between. This is true of everybody. Everybody worships. You can't help it. And you say, no, no, I'm not religious. I don't even believe in God. Trust me, you worship. You can't help but worship. It's like breathing. It's in your DNA. You can't stop yourself from worshiping because we were made to worship. So the question is not, do I worship? It is, what do I worship? And as we become a more secular nation, what happens is we don't stop worshiping. We just start worshiping lesser gods. So we start worshiping politics. I don't know if you've turned on the television lately, but those are some very religious people on those those stations. I mean, they're more passionate about their political views than most of us are about our faith. They worship. Or you worship a cause. It's a, you know, social justice issue. You worship a person. You worship what you will worship. You will make your life about something or someone. You just can't help it. And so he says, get a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So he says, you really have two options. The question is not if you will worship. You will worship. The question is, will you have false or true worship? And if you have false worship, that's called idolatry. And and idolatry sounds like a very old school word, and you think of, you know, maybe some statues or figures. or No, no, no. Idolatry is when you make something or someone more important than God. It is is fundamental to your self-worth, your security, your identity. It becomes what we call a pseudo-savior. Money can be it. Friends, family, spouse, anything can become an idol. It really is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. So for Jacob, Rachel was that thing. He said, if I can just have her, then my brokenness, then my hurts, then my life will start making sense. She is the one that will save me. If you're not sure what your idol is or the thing that is fighting for that top spot in your life, a couple ways you can, can look is, is look at your dreams. So what is the thing that you, you dream about? Like when you have nothing else to think about, your mind wanders to this place and you, you think this, if I just had this, if I just had them, then my life would be complete. Or look at your nightmares. Is there something in your life that you think, if I lost this person or if I lost this thing, then my life would not even be worth living? I'll be honest. The things that fight for the top spot in my life is my, my wife and my family. You can take everything else away. Yeah, I'd be bummed, but continue on. Let's go. But if you took those things away from, from me, I would almost lose the will to live. And so I have to recognize that those are great gifts that God, those are blessings, and we celebrate that, but those, those are not big enough to become the thing that I worship in my life. 
problem is that idols will always break your heart. No matter how good that person or that thing is, it's never going to be able to bear the weight of your hopes and dreams. It was never meant to. They were supposed to be really good things, but they were never supposed to be God in your life. From an early age, we are taught the exact opposite. Watch any Disney movie, and we are told, if you just find your one true love, then you're going to live happily ever after. And anyone who's married says, (laughs) oh, to be a child. I kind of think one of the reasons why um, Christian marriages work out better is because I don't need my spouse to be my savior. And I know she doesn't see me as her savior. (laughs) Whenever she's disappointed, which is quite frequent in our marriage, I go, babe, that's why you got Jesus, okay? (laughs) Don't come to me with all those expectations. Lower your expectations. I'm not Jesus, okay? Go to Jesus, pray about it, come back to me, we'll be good, all right? I, I think that's, yeah, there's a couple guys that are like, yes, you hear that? <laughs> Babe, you hear that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, amen. I like this church thing. All right. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was at one of my kids' sports games recently, and I was, I was watching um, some of the other parents and how they interact, and, and there's this, uh, I saw one specific interaction, but I think there's kind of a whole uh, group of people like this where, and these are little kids, but the dads are more into it than the kids are, like way more into it. And one of the kids was having just a really rough game, and they're little kids, and, and, uh, and the kid was, was, was having a meltdown. And I very quickly realized the meltdown was not due to him not performing well. It's because his dad was so disappointed in him. And the kid was just melting down. It was just getting worse as the game went down. And eventually, the dad and him just left the game. And I was watching this, and I thought, oh, see, here's the problem. You have put all your hopes and dreams in this kid. And this kid, he'll never live up to that. I don't care what he does in his life. He cannot fulfill your hopes and dreams. And not only is it going to destroy you, it's going to destroy him. See, that kid was never supposed to be your savior, just like your spouse, just like your job, just like your relationships. is That's not what those are for. They are good things, but they're not God things. And see, when we begin to realize that, no, 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 these things are not going to save me, we can actually find freedom in this, is we can begin to say, you know what? I don't need my spouse to save me. I don't need my kid to fulfill my hopes and my dreams. I don't need, I can just enjoy them for who they are because I already have a Savior. And so I don't need a Savior in them. St. Augustine defines sin as disordered love, and I think that's what's taking place here. As we think of sin as these things I should and shouldn't do, and I'm making God mad because I'm breaking his moral law, and yeah, that's true, but really what sin is, is, is you've, you're loving the wrong things in the wrong order. Let me give you a quick example. Should you love your mother, especially on Mother's Day? Yeah, of course you should love your mom. I think it's natural, it's good, it's a commandment in the scriptures to honor our father and our mother. Should you love your spouse? Yes, of course. Next to God, that should be the most important relationship that you have. It's where two flesh become one. But should you love your mom more than you love your spouse? No. If you do, you're going to end up moving back in with her pretty soon. (laughs) Hey-o. See, what happens is when you get those those loves out of order, something's going to break. 
something will break. God designed us in such a way for not only are we supposed to, to, he's supposed to shape the things that we love, but also the order that we love them in. So as Christians, part of our job is, okay, we acknowledge that our, our, our loves have been disordered. And so I need to get back to the right, okay, it's Jesus first, and then it's my spouse, and then my kids, and then it's going to be my family and friends, and then we'll continue on from there. But I got to keep those in order because if I don't, something's going to break. And so uh, parents out there, just a little piece of advice on Mother's Day, not because I'm a great parent, but I've seen some great parents uh, in other families. Um, just kidding. Mine are too, great too. One of the best gifts that you can give your kids is to love them a little bit less than you love your spouse. And I see that getting kind of flipped sometimes. Is I love Amy more than I love those three kids. And I love those three kids so much. But it's good for them to see how much I love their mom. Because that's, an or- that's a disordered love if I don't. The thing that, that kids seek is, is safety and comfort and love, and when they see me love their mother like that, not only do they get to experience all the things that they want, but it sets them up for success one day when they get married. Then uh, let me finish this, uh, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He reveals to this woman for the first time who he truly is. And he says, not only do I have the living water, I am the living water. The thing that you've been looking for through all those relationships and the thing that has led you to have such a disastrous life, so much regret and shame, what you have been searching for the whole time is not the right man in a relationship. It's the relationship with God. Is you have this deep hole in your heart and it can only be fulfilled by your creator. And so I, I am the one that you have been looking for. I am the one who created you, and I am the one who knows your deepest needs and longings, and I'm the one who can actually fulfill them. So the end of the story is that she runs into town, and she announces that she has seen the Messiah, and she invites everyone to come and to see, and and they do, and many put their faith in Christ. But here's the last thing I want to say. Some of you guys... You've been sitting there and you've been squirming in your seat. Somebody dragged you. Mother's Day, there's always a couple extra people here who are like, I'm going because I was promised lunch after this and this is my Mother's Day gift. I get it. All right? I get it. And then you come here and you hear about, of course, they're going to talk about money and sex because those are the two favorite subjects. And then you go, ah, see, this is why I don't come to church. (laughs) I've invited people to church and they go, oh, I could never go because that place will just burn up if I walk through the doors. Like, no, we got a lot of fireproof stuff. It should be fine. You know, we'd be all right. We got extinguishers and stuff. But here's what I want you to, to hear. And this is what Jesus was saying to this woman is, your past is not a stopping point to following Jesus. It is never a stopping point. When we come to Jesus, in fact, here's the reality. Our past is almost always the launching point, not the stopping point to coming to Jesus. Because it's when we finally realize, I am broken, I am screwed up, I have a lot of guilt and shame and regret. It's when we finally realize the bad news about ourselves. can we accept the good news about who Jesus is. And so he says, come to me, and I will wipe away all of those things. I will, I'm not going to hold any of that against you. That's what happened on the cross, is you can be forgiven of all of those things. So don't allow this to be a stopping point. Allow it to be a launching point. For some of us, we're right in the middle of it, and we have to decide. 
okay, am I, am I going to choose Jesus as my authority? Not only my, my top love, but the one who gets to decide what I love, or is this my stopping point? I value that relationship, that lifestyle, that pursuit more than I value Jesus. And so the question we've been asking is this. Is this my stopping point, or is this another point in my journey of learning to trust him? Let's pray. Lord God, this uh, journey that you have invited us on to follow you uh, is, is full of twists and turns and some unexpected uh, obstacles along the way, but Lord, it is good um, because the places that you take us, the journey that you are taking us on, the place that it ends is in freedom, freedom from not only our sin, but freedom to be who you have called us to be, and ultimately, it's a freedom that we experience in your loving arms, and so Lord God, my prayer is that as people throughout this series acknowledge that they are at a stopping point, that could be the pursuit of happiness or money or a love, that they would see that you're worth it. Every single time, no matter what it is that you are calling us to, Lord God, that we would continue to see it as another step along the journey of faith and not a stopping point. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys stand with me. Thank you so much for being here this week. And moms, we love you. There are some places to take pictures out there. I think we have a gift for you on your way out as well. Have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.